Welcome to Restoring Memory, a COVID Calls exploration of the first two COVID years. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters, and since March 16th, 2020, I've been the host of COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. This is episode number 481, March 16th, 2022. Life and Death in Delta and Omicron with Cassie Alexander. And I'm going to jump right into the conversation today and let me introduce my guest. And she's no stranger to COVID calls and anybody who follows COVID calls. Cassie Alexander is a registered nurse of 14 years and an author. As Cassandra, she's written The Year of the Nurse, a 2020 COVID-19 pandemic memoir. As Cassie, she's written numerous paranormal romances with vampires, werewolves, and dragon shifters. And it's my pleasure, as always, to bring Cassie Alexander back to COVID Calls. Good to see you. Hi, Scott. It's nice to be here. I just want people watching this, if anybody, to know that it's very early where I live. <laughs> I have to say, like, the demands, uh, I, you know, invited people to come back for this special 28 episode collection. And some of the invitations were just not fair at all. They're like, <laughs> can you join me at midnight? Can you join me at 7 a.m.? And, um, and everyone said yes. Uh, so I owe you a couple hours of sleep. Uh, I don't know how to pay that. I don't know what the currency is, but um, I'm really glad you could join me today. Me too. Me too. No, I wouldn't have said yes if I hadn't wanted to be here. So so let's start. Actually, um, I was talking with my stepmom and my mother-in-law on COVID calls just a few days ago. It was a really great conversation with them. Um, and they're both they both, I think they've listened to more COVID calls than anybody else. And they're like deep listeners. They're like, they listen all the way through the episode. Um, and they think a lot of you. And um, my stepmom's been reading your book. And so I, I wanted to ask you about Year of the Nurse now. It's been out there and circulating mm -hmm. a while. What kind of feedback are you getting? Good feedback. You, you know, it's it's funny. So for people who aren't aware of my um, saga, I'll like give you the the brief version. Um, basically I volunteered to take care of COVID patients in just like two, this, this week, two years ago, actually in 2020, um, I work on an ICU and I did that until, um, April, uh, late April, 2021. And then I kind of had a breakdown at work and I realized I'm messed up. Uh, well, basically, I, I was like, I, why am I taking care? Why am I keeping people alive when I would rather be dead is what I texted my friends who then texted my husband who then was like, come home. <laughs> so um, and because of my history as a writer and because I had journaled so much during taking care of COVID patients, I had all this material to kind of create a memoir out of my experiences that first year. And so that's how Year of the Nurse was born. And I'm going to be one of those corny people who holds their book up because I brought it in here just in case you ask questions. So this is what it looks like. Um, <clears throat> and so I also had the capability to self-publish it because I had done that sort of thing before. And so I put it out July of this past year. So I went from like being pretty broken in April to um, making this the whole thing that was keeping me busy that I was going to get better by doing, I hoped. And it really did help me to coordinate my thoughts about what had happened to me during COVID and to like take time to kind of, um, I don't want to say honor what I had been through, but that's probably like the best phrase for it. Um, to, um, 
to see what I had actually gone through because when you're in the trenches, it's all just a blur. And so, um, and then I got it out there and my, my reviews are fantastic. If you happen to look it up on, um, on any site, actually like a 4.7 or something on Amazon, which is redonkulous. But, um, since then though, you know, anytime anybody ever sells like what's going to be a COVID memoir, one of my other nerdy publishing friends will send me a link and they're like, oh my gosh, you know, this, you know, some paramedic someplace is going to, you know, write a book and people, and I'm excited for those people. Like everybody who's in healthcare should be writing about their experiences because it's really helpful to see on a page what happened to you and to get a chance to understand it from a slight distance. And, um, but, um, and so sometimes I'd be like, oh gosh, you know, maybe I should have pitched this to a traditional publisher. Maybe I should have waited and gotten more attention, but I needed to get it out there because I needed to feel seen because last July was before, um, Delta hit. And so I, um, I was worried that we were all going to be forgotten kind of like we are being now, now that Omicron is done. And I just, um, I knew there was a need for it. And so, um, I actually got a really, really sweet fan mail that kind of, that I'll read to you. I got this like two days ago and I get things like this, um, pretty regularly and they're always very sweet and very humbling. Like all the fan mail I get about year of the nurse. So this is, um, this is another nurse who uh, messaged me on Twitter, <clears throat> uh, Cassie. First off, thank you for being entirely you and stepping up to write a book that so many of us needed. I'm an MICU, guess I can finally stop referring to myself as a COVID ICU nurse from Pennsylvania. I just finished reading Year of the Nurse and truly have never felt so understood. If I was a kid writing an essay about who I want to be when I grow up, I would choose you. Personal aside, that makes me feel really old. <laughs> and I'm not, but oh well. <laughs> um, while I started out in my nursing career and entirely COVID ICU, the emotions I have felt and the experience I've had will shape me forever, as you very much know. I often find myself overcome with emotions while watching something even remotely sat on TV, just as you described in your book, and haven't had the strength to book an appointment to see a therapist until I read your words. I will now be passing along your book to two of my very eager coworkers who started in the ICU with me, and then hopefully to my boyfriend who's Republican, who I love dearly, but who I've been working with to understand my life and viewpoint for the past two years. I think your words could do it. My fingers are crossed for her. Um, I know you probably received thousands of messages like this and might never even read this DM, but thank you for helping me to find some peace in the experiences we have been through. You are incredible, and I hope you are well. Um... And so, so yeah, so I, I accomplished what I wanted to accomplish. You know, I made myself better and I made the world a measurably better place for other nurses like me. So that, thanks for reading that. And that, I mean, it's really powerful. There's one detail in there that really made me sit up straight and it's, so this is a, this is a nurse who's only ever known ICU work in a COVID context. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of those out there. Yeah. I don't know how to even process that. I mean, how do you, I mean, you don't want to, to say something like this is as bad as you'll ever see. It, but it, but it's absolutely true, though. I mean, and to some degree, if you can do, if you can have survived the past couple of years as a nurse, you can do anything. Um, but, but 
you will have been broken in some way. Like I, I know for sure that I was broken. I have an excellent piece of paper from my psychiatrist saying that I was broken. But um, yeah, it, COVID nursing obviously was just not normal nursing. And I think um, it'll be probably hard for people who were raised up in that, so to speak, to come back to being normal because they don't even know what normal is like. Um, yeah. Did you, I want to come back to something you said a minute ago. Did, did you have before COVID a sense of writing as a as a mental health practice? I, yeah, probably, probably. Um, my first book series, I just got the rights back to. It was traditionally published. It was that began with Night Shifted, and it was the story of a nurse who worked on a ward for vampire exposed humans. And that was just like me dealing with being a new nurse um, and working the night shift and thinking I was going to kill somebody all the time on accident or they were going to kill me probably on purpose because I worked at a rough hospital. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I've had people read that book and be like, I know where you worked. And I'm like, yes, yes, you are right. You can tell that that is the facility that I worked at because I described it so well in that book. So, Yeah. So turning that into fiction was a way that you, and did it actually make you feel better? I'm sort of curious about the yeah, actual dynamics yeah. of that and get it, it out on the page. It's it's empowering in a way. You know, when you get to um, pull your experiences out of you and then um, it, I mean, in fiction, obviously you get to be like the, the queen of your realm. You get to make the endings better. You get to like be in control of what's happening to you and stuff. So I think, yeah, I think fiction is hugely empowering. I feel like that's why a lot of people write fan fiction or write self-insert fan fiction too about properties that they enjoy because it's, it's fun to be a part of something and it's fun to have like a little distance from it and to be able to like to control the narrative. And paranormal romance as opposed to other kinds of fiction genres that you that you could choose does that enable i mean particularly you know for for a nurse I mean, um. and i ask this because i mean I, there's a lot of you know with shape-shifting there's a lot of body stuff going on right oh, I mean, oh yeah yeah well i enjoy the opera i do i am a body horror kind of person and all of my okay. my books are kind of intense and have like high drama it's um i i kind of joke they have like uh, CW levels of angst with HBO motivation. I don't know if you were familiar with the CW channel out there in Korea, Scott, but it's like, it's like very angsty. Um, but, um, yeah. Uh, but also, so the body horror stuff is fun because I, it, paranormal romance allows you to be very, very dark, but then also have like a romance streak. And that's, that's one of the reasons why I enjoy it. And I think you kind of nailed that actually. Because you can have um, fairly gruesome things happen, which is good because I'm pretty morbid, but then also have this strong streak where a hero and a heroine make the best of the situation and get out alive or happily undead. So, Why did you go into nursing, Cassie? <laughs> um, I, got, I became a nurse basically so I could afford to write. So I've always wanted to be a writer. So I became a nurse because I lived in the Bay Area and it was back in the day. And, and, I, and I did talk about that in my book a little bit. So sorry for people who read my book. Um, 
I wanted to be Michael Crichton basically because I had thought that he had become a doctor and got rich and then retired to write books that I loved like Jurassic Park. And it wasn't until I started reading You're the Nurse that I found out he only went to medical school. And so he like somehow translated medical school into like 20 years of ER, the TV show. Um, and he didn't have to bother with being a doctor that whole time. Uh, but when I went to college part one, I thought I was going to be a doctor. So I did all my prereqs. And then when I went to college, uh, then I realized, oh, I can be a nurse, live in the Bay Area, work part time and write. And that's why I became a nurse, basically, as a means to an end. I I do enjoy it, but it, it is a hard job. And the the um, the hard aspects of it were within a tolerable tolerable range. Yeah, because I've always been morbid, even beforehand. So um, yeah, I mean, my first ten years nursing were on a burn unit, so I kind of jumped into the deep end, and I loved right. it. So. So just a quick reminder that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Cassie Alexander today. I want to talk to you today particularly about the um, Delta and Omicron waves, and I think it's particularly re relevant to what we were just, where we just were in our conversation. So you wrote Year of the Nurse after coming out of that sort of first wave of the pandemic, and, and the Bay Area was hit first in the United States. So you're at the tip of the spear there. And you were worried in the summer of 2021, that people were already the the pandemic was going into the memory hole and i think um you know i think that's a valid concern and then you you know the book comes out and then delta and omicron hit yeah. what were your i guess the first question i want to ask you about that is kind of a clinical one what were you watching or what were you how did you first realize like oh we're going back into this now um Hopping back real fast, just to because I don't want to throw any shade on. I feel like New York City was definitely the spear tip. They got it way, way, way worse than we did. I've always been fairly lucky out here in the Bay Area. We have gotten things faster, but because of our higher propensity for masking and vaccinations, we've been much more lightly hit than so many other parts in the United States. So I just wanted to give my other friends props in other states for the horrors that they have seen that have been far greater than me. Um. <sighs> Gosh, you know, it was just with a rising sense of horror last July after I got Year of the Nurse out because um, I just remember such shitty mixed messaging, you know, it's like, oh, you don't have to wear masks unless you're unvaccinated. So that made it look like if you were wearing a mask that you were an unvaccinated asshole, as opposed to just being somebody who is super considerate or super safe. And, and I... Because I visited a friend up in Portland <clears throat> for um, like in that brief window of safety. And I just remember thinking, there's no way this can end well if something else happens. And then, and then boom, like we were caught flat footed again. And I, I happened to luckily break my ankle. And so I missed another three months of work. And so I missed a lot of the Delta wave, but I was around for all of the Omicron. And it's, it's a really weird feeling to see people run towards the spinning knives repeatedly to just, you know, masking is such an easy thing to do. And vaccination is such an easy thing to do. But like, my own parents have told me that they're not going to get boosted. And I'm a nurse, so just fuck my life. You know, like, why would you, 
you know, why is that a thing that people think that it's okay to not get vaccinated? And, you know, we, I know that, you know, we can lay that squarely at the feet of the Republican Party and Fox News, who for some reason have decided that being obstreperous about public health is going to win them votes instead of kill people. Um, I've had to divorce myself a lot from worrying about the United States as a whole, though, and other people. And I've really just narrowed my bandwidth down to only caring about the people who truly matter to me because I can't afford to be as expansive with my emotions as I used to be when I started off, you know, back when I thought that when I was like, back when I thought that I could make a difference. I mean, I make a small difference with my books and stuff and people like my newsletter and my Twitter feed, but but that's very much preaching to the choir at this point. I don't really go looking for trouble anymore. I don't try to convince people anymore. Um, partially because I feel like I've done my job and I'm exhausted by it. But also, too, I just I don't have the patience to listen to anybody's lies or bullshit anymore. And I don't have the bandwidth to fight it. It's just so endless, you know, I'm sure you've seen those graphs, you know, of like how much energy it takes to like uh, fix or change one lie. And the thing is, is that they're not invested in each particular lie. They just need the lies as the means towards their end. So there's nothing that I can actually tell people who aren't going to get vaccinated right now that, you know, that they should for, and for instance, <laughs> I have two coworkers who didn't get vaccinated. They got religious. Well, one got a medical exemption. One got a religious exemption. They both have COVID right now. <laughs> so oh, wow. like what, what, you know, wow. if, if they who were there in the horrors with me didn't see the value in science, like, yeah, sorry, that was very scattered, Scott. No, I think it's, but not at all. I, I mean, I think it's, it's, um, and we've talked about this before, we realize that there's just a um, population out there that's not... You, you, <laughs> I'm kicking my cat out. She can't be trusted. <laughs> I thought this would be the one podcast I could trust her with, but no. No, it's just that, um, you know, it, it, evidence, people just see evidence differently. I'm, I'm trying to be very generous and even here. But, you know, I, mean, I think it's, you know, even evidence, even showing people, people dying, that there will pe be people who say, yeah, it's just, I'm not going to, it's not going to do that. Well, and you know, everyone always thinks they're the exception to the rule, right? I, um, I recently had this, um, it was very interesting at work. I had this patient in February and then I had them like two weeks ago when they finally died. And their family had convinced them that they were going to be safe, that they lived a quiet enough life, that there was no way that they were ever going to get COVID. And they had had a birthday party and somebody who knew that they were infected with COVID showed up to the birthday party and got this octogenarian member of their family sick. And I can tell the story because it's happened a million times all over the United States. Um, and so I was there with them the morning they were going to get intubated. And I was like, we're making all the phone calls now. Let's go. And so um, <clears throat> so I gave them the phone. Well, I explained briefly to the family what was going to happen. And then I gave them the phone. And they started talking to their family member about um, 
like, you know, trying to get their family member to talk to them about, you know, how bad are your breathing problems? Can't you get the antibodies and stuff? And I was still in there in my gown waiting to get my phone back. And I picked up the phone and I was like, this is not the time for that conversation. This is the time to talk about things that really matter and get some good moments in. And then they're like, are you telling me that my loved one is going to die? And they start screaming on the phone at me. And I'm like, I can't predict the future, but bad things sometimes happen when people get COVID. So this is your chance to talk to them, okay? I give the phone back and they start praying and singing or listening to songs and stuff. And they have like this final moment and I get my phone back at the end of it, clean it off. They get intubated and I get to leave the room. And then um, like three hours later, I have to call them back to get permission for us to do another procedure on this patient. And it's so funny. They're like, and this mean lady doctor told us that my loved one was going to die. And I was like, well, full disclosure, that was me. Uh, <laughs> I'm a nurse. <laughs> but that's the title of your next book, Mean Lady Doctor. <laughs> I was like, and I wasn't trying to be mean to yeah. you. I wanted you to get to the stage where you had a chance for meaningful conversations. And I heard you guys praying and I heard you guys singing songs to them. And so I know that that was a good thing. And, and they calmed down. And, um, and then, um, like maybe a week and a half ago that that patient wound up uh passing on my shift <clears throat> and uh that was kind of like my that they happened to be the last uh covid patient we had in my icu so that was kind of like my last kind of covid bridge there and hopefully it stays that way for a very long time or forever that would be fine with me but um but yeah it, it you know it's strange to me in my heart that people were still getting sick with COVID this past winter when we all knew all the everything already and the, the things that we needed to do to stay safe were so clearly marked, but people just couldn't manage to do them. When you describe an intubation to a family, how granular do you get with that? We just usually call it a breathing tube because it's just easier for people to understand. Um, what happens on the far side of that is um, it's like the breathing tube is fairly rigid. It's more like an aquarium hose, um, which sometimes people have seen or like a, a hose hose and it's not flexible. And so when somebody's getting intubated, you know, you say breathing tube, but then like a week or two pass and then you kind of have to get more into depth about what its function is and, and how it works because because it's somewhat stiff and it needs to be somewhat stiff so the patient can't bite down on it. Um, it, it has the possibility to create erosion inside the mouth and, and throat structures. And so it's generally not good for people to have it in for long periods of time because that was the thing is, is like families would be like, okay, well, you know, just leave them on the breathing tube for forever. Let's see if they ever get better. And, and the thing was, is that, um, they weren't going to, and eventually leaving a tube in would, would create wounds. Um, and it is possible for sometimes for us to, um, you know, do tracheostomies, which is essentially like a breathing tube through this portion of the throat, which they don't have the opportunity to bite on. So it can be a little, um, better for the body. But, um, a lot of times though, the vast majority of the time when you got to the ICU, your, your lungs were so shot that, um, it wasn't going to make a difference long-term. Um, and the, one of the phrases that our palliative care team would use that I liked is um, that the patient is 
taking the choice away from us. And so because people don't want to feel like they're responsible for a loved one's death. But um, and it was true, though, oftentimes the patient was taking the the choice away from us because their health was declining and it wasn't about us killing them or putting them to sleep. It was about them like they were going to die no matter what. How can we make this as graceful landing as possible? I guess, you know, I just, if you don't mind, I just ask sort of a little yeah, bit more about it. that because um, it must be a skill that you learn over time to know how much information to give to people. Yes. It's, and it's too hard. much information can be like I can, what you just described, I think I could hear that described about a loved one. And I, I think I have no idea, actually. Let me not say that because I have no idea how I would feel at all. Um, I can imagine a hypothetical me that would say, okay, that's clear and, and, and thank you for that. Um, I might even ask additional questions, in which case you have other things to do. And you'd say, that, you know, let me point you to WebMD or wherever I need to go with that. Um, but I'm curious, and then there must be other people that the minute you start the description, they get a look or they do a body language or something where you're low, where, you know, I don't want to go further with this. So I'm curious, you know, are there legal uh, requirements of how much you describe? Is it pretty much up to you to describe? I mean, these are not easy things to talk about. It's a, it's a skill you gain with time. And the most important thing is, um, and so remember, too, during COVID, we didn't have visitation. So it wasn't physical. It was on the phone. Um, so you, you can really go off of body cues, but, um, the most important thing we would do though, is to have, um, everybody be on the same page, because if you have like some, some rogue staff member be like, oh yeah, people survive from this all the time, then they're going to glow onto that one ray of sunshine and they're never going to hear like the truth, you know? So it's never worth sugarcoating anything, um, because we all want, we would all be hugely surprised and we would love to have like a miraculously good outcome, but those things never happen or very, 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 very rarely happen. We would all rather be wrong about a miracle than, um, <clears throat> that, uh, that's, that's bad phrasing. It, um, we, oh gosh, I was going to say this one way and I like spaced. <clears throat> We, a mir if a miracle proved us wrong, that would be great. But because it's likely not, we're not doing you any favors by including it in the realm of possibility, you know. And especially, too, as like COVID wore on and we just we knew the science, we knew exactly how everything was going to go. <clears throat> we had the rhythm down and, and we had the lung scans, right? We could look at people's lungs and be like, this is the kind of damage that you're not going to recover from. So, um, but people would definitely... Um, be at home and I don't blame them like Googling and trying to figure out something that we could do differently to save their loved one. Absolutely. And we would kind of have to curtail that. A quick reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Cassie Alexander today. Um, I've talked with um, Dr. Gabriel Boslett before about the, um, you know, Delta wave and the way, that, you know, sort of the knowledge 
accumulated from the first wave and into the second. And the kind of things that maybe people would miss, I suppose a lot of it's informal about the way that a team works, um, maybe even down to the level of how scheduling works and, you know, people's, you know, individual strengths and weaknesses on a, on a care team. I wanted to ask you about that. And, and there's a complicating factor, which we've talked about before, which is visiting nurses. Mm-hmm. So what kind of muscle memory did you have in Omicron that was gained at a very high price in the, in the first wave? And did it matter so much that there were visitors coming in and out, or did you have what you needed no matter who was showing up? Um, so I feel very lucky at my facility. All of our uh, traveling nurses that we've gotten basically were battle-hardened by COVID already. So I would say like our first probably six months of COVID, we didn't need any travelers because we still had enough staff, people hadn't retired yet or um, gone on to get other jobs themselves. <clears throat> so uh, there's just a rhythm when you have a COVID patient that you know you're going to fall into, <clears throat> depending on how they present, you know, how bad their lungs are. Are you going to prone them? How What's their blood pressure? Are they going to need blood pressure medications that would require a central line? Do you need an arterial line because you need to keep a lifetime measure of how their blood pressure is going to go? And so um, we just recently, though, because we've had so many people leave my hospital, we're maybe like a third to a half travelers on any given shift. And they're they're very good travelers still so far, but they just um, and we these are entirely different travelers. We've like had several sets go through. They just don't know like how the hospital, how our hospital does things. That's, that's the gap. So if you told them they had to go, you know, to the MRI when they didn't have a transporter with them or something, for some reason, they wouldn't know where that was, or they wouldn't know what color tubes to use, or um, they aren't as intimately familiar with um, where the crash cart is, where all these sorts of things are. And so right, right now, I work at a facility, which I, I love that they, we foster a culture of learning and we try to help one another out. And so they feel really free about asking us questions and we, when we support them because we want everything, everyone to have a good outcome. But, um, we are talking about going on a strike in April and, and that's going to be really interesting. And I've talked to some of the travelers about that, whose contracts extend through the strike and they're super nervous. They're because they know that they don't know everything, the ins and outs of how our hospital runs or who to contact if certain things go badly. And um, so, yeah, that'll, that's going to be really interesting times for them there, but not me, because I'll be striking. <laughs> what's, what's precipitating the strike? I mean, I can't oh, believe gosh. <laughs> So, yeah, so you know how the cost of living has gone up so, so, so much in America right now? It, it, mm-hmm. it has. Um, they just... They want to take my my hospital system wants to take away certain vacation days from us. And then they also don't want to give us an appropriate cost of living increase. And we haven't gotten a cost of living increase to actually match the cost of living increase in America for like the past three years. So technically, like we're making less now than we were back then, like proportionally how our dollars will spend. And they want to um, continue to shaft us. So. Yesterday, I participated in a um, 
system-wide pre-picket line where we picketed outside of our hospital to show them that we were very interested in going on strike. And then next week, we're going to vote on going on strike. And everybody I know is voting yes. We're all very much over feeling taken advantage of by our hospital. And so um, then sometime in April, we'll actually go on strike and that will be great because we're all it's we're all kind of treating it like a mini vacation. I think we've all known this was coming down the pipe for so long that people have saved up money because you're not allowed to use your own PTO to pay for stuff while you're on strike. You're just expected to eat that. But like at the thought of having like a week or two away from work, everybody's thrilled. So with a large population of traveling nurses, is that a way that the hospital will, will cope with that? It, they're going to try, and it will be interesting. We had a strike. Um, uh, not my the respiratory therapies respiratory therapists at my hospital had to have a strike a couple about a year ago, and we were there that day because our unions are different. And and this, it was a respiratory therapist and all of our lab techs. And that was a shit show. We had a transfusion reaction that day to um, blood. They, the lab had no idea what to do. The people working the CT scanner didn't really know how to operate it. And after two days, <clears throat> they um, got some enough of their demands met that they could come back to the table, they felt. So we'll see how administration works with meeting our demands, but we're all ready to be out for as long as it takes and pretty excited about that, which I don't think they realize how hard we will be to replace and how eager we are to have a break. And also too, they just think we're, I, I don't know, you know, I, for some reason they think nursing is easy and the, you know, it's interesting. I'm sorry, Scott, very digressiony this morning. Um, before I went back to work at my facility, I like signed up for all these websites um, that do travel agents, travel nursing, because I thought, oh, maybe this is something that I could do <clears throat> if I wound up super hating my job. If I, if I was going to sell my soul, at least I could sell it to the highest bidder. And so I see travel nursing contracts come through. So I know what they're costing right now, but I also know what strike travel nursing costs because people who cross lines, you have to pay them twice as much, right? Right. So I don't know, you probably, you're not tied into nurse Twitter, but like a couple of weeks ago, everybody's like, oh my God, they're paying $13,000 a week for nurses in Washington, DC. That was a strike contract. Right. So, um, so the thought that my hospital system might have to pay like hundreds of people $13,000 a week to, to, to cross our picket line very, it's, it's interesting math, <laughs> you know, mm. it's a whole, it's been a whole lot of robbing Peter to pay Paul this whole time. So I would have expected that there would have already been strikes all, all or maybe there have been, and I've, and I have missed it that all across America. And, and I guess it puts into relief. You can talk me out of this or tell me I'm naive. I mean, there's still this sort of sense of like doing the job and the mission to try to give the benefit of the doubt to the leadership. I guess that's all at this point. It's exhausted. Huh? Yeah, no, that's that's been burned away by reality. But, you know, most nurses don't have unions. So right. we're, we're very lucky in California for that to be a thing. So the reason that we have that is because during the AIDS crisis, so many um, nurses fled the Bay Area that the nurses who remained... Um, you know, because they didn't know how things worked and they were panicked. <clears throat> um, 
So the nurses that remained were, um, had a lot of bargaining power. And so that's how come um, the Bay Area in California became such a powerhouse of nursing unions. Um, and some other states have them, but a lot of times you're just right to work or you're not allowed to have them, like in Texas and stuff, I think. So, so those people, so rather than unionize, those people are just leaving. They're just coming to fulfill our travel contracts, basically. So... I think if you wanted an object lesson in why capitalism is not sustainable in the way it is in the United States, you just look at the health system pre, pre-COVID. Yeah. And, and it comes back, I think, to your book, You're the Nurse. And something, the first time we talked, you went on this amazing riff about which I've used in class about don't give us a pizza party. Yeah. Don't treat us like third graders. Like, yeah. Yeah. We can have mental health, you know, support and, and we can have, you know, uh, I don't know what it, it, a paperweight for nurses or, you know, a little plaque or that's great, but also pay us. Yeah. 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 We, we want to see meaningful change and meaningful change yeah. is better staffing ratios and enough staff and, and money. And that's just, you know, how America works. So yeah, we, yeah, we're done being taken advantage of. And I, and I think COVID I don't want to say the only good thing to come out of COVID because that makes it sound like I was pro COVID, but it's definitely um, lifted the veil from our eyes as far as our personal worth and integrity, according to our hospital administration. So the rush to normal is, is real. Um, The United States Senate um, is uh, moving to override mask mandates mm-hmm. um, in public transportation. I think that that probably won't pass that Biden mm-hmm. will will uh, veto that. But it's hard to get any consensus in the United States Senate, but it seems to be you can get consensus on the idea that the pandemic is over. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that yesterday and I was like, motherfuckers. <laughs> I don't understand what the big rush to end the mask mandates is like. I, I feel like by now we should have learned our lesson that anytime you want to end mask mandates, we should just all wait like two or three weeks. You know, what's the harm in keeping on keeping on? It's it's not so bad. Um, and I guess we as a people have learned nothing. So, um, but, you know, I had to go to the grocery store after my shift yesterday or not my shift uh, the day before yesterday. And everybody here in California, at least in Oakland, in the grocery store, had their masks on still. And, and I'm anticipating that to um, keep going on where I live for a while because the Bay Area actually gives a shit about each other. So I don't know what I would do if I lived someplace else, though. Um, yeah. You know, I, I need to go and visit my parents in Texas at some point in time. Yeah. And I just can't even conceive of managing that. How are you going to do it? I have to go too. I'm going to try to go in July. I I have no idea, Scott. I I mean, like between the fact that my parents aren't boosted and that I want to wear a mask and that I don't really want to go out in public. I just, yeah, I have, I haven't even really conceived of how I'm going to make it work. And it's hard, right? They're getting older and I want to be a good kid. And we just don't, see eye to eye on these things clearly and and also too i don't want to get any flack for it you know like in the past i've stayed at their place and i haven't had my own mode of transportation if i go on this trip and that's still a big if i will definitely have 
my own hotel room someplace and a car and then be able to escape. So if I, you know, if a relative corners me and starts being all talking in my ear, bullshit about COVID, I'm just going to leave. I just, I don't want to have a panic attack in front of other people anymore. And um, yeah, I don't deserve it. So I'm just going to go, but yeah. Do you think if you'd been uh, a nurse in January of 2020 in San Antonio, Austin, or Houston, you'd still be in the profession? <laughs> no. I mean, unless I were financially obligated so that I had to stay there, right? right? That's the thing. So we have some travelers now. I love them. There's these, these boys who've been coming over from the East Coast, but they've been working their way across the country. And their most recent contract was in Colorado <clears throat> during... Um, like the lead up to this winter with Omicron there and they were only getting, they were taking three to four ICU patients, which is insane. And they were only getting paid $29 an hour. And we just stared at them in the break room when they told us that one of my coworkers said, I would have just gone home. And Mm -hmm. that's true. Like that sounds so classist. So for people who don't know how nursing money works and and if you don't make as much as we do, I'm very sorry about that, but please trust me, we earn it. And yeah, there's so many places where nurses aren't getting paid enough to get by or enough to be worth staying. And we kind of talked about this last COVID calls, right? Where they were talking about like Kentucky opening up so many slots in nursing schools, like a thousand people are going to go through nursing school with a scholarship. Well, that's great. How are you going to keep them in Kentucky? Why would you stay in Kentucky and get paid like 20 bucks an hour when you could go to either coast and make at least 40, you know? So yeah. So if I'd been in Texas, I would have not become a nurse or I would have could, or I would have left probably at least I'm paid decently for where I am, although more is always better. Well, there is going to be an amazing set of books or movies. I'm not sure how it's going to come out about traveling nurses in COVID. I mean, what every time I've talked to you, you have these stories and it's like, and I'm sure people have so many different reasons that they, that they did it. I mean, economic, of course, and maybe other motivations to uh, adventure is the wrong word, but the sense of service or to get away from a situation you want to get away from. In a way, this is kind of the silly thing. It just came to mind though. It's almost like great depression, right? They're, they're moving to make money, you know? And, and yeah, there's a lot of, there's a a bunch of stories in that. A lot of them live someplace fairly cheap and then they like work very hard and then they go and live cheaply for as long as they can and come back. Um, Yeah. Like healthcare mercenaries in a way, only very helpful. And we like to see them. We're almost out of time. Just a quick reminder that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Cassie Alexander today, the author of Year of the Nurse. And um, yeah, I wanted to ask you kind of a hard question um, about, and it's, it's kind of about mental health, and it's about moral injury and caregiving. And I've talked to lots of healthcare workers lately who have a, a real sense of exhaustion, resignation, Still doing the job, but um, I think it's fair to say that um, you've seen the worst of people, not just physically, but also, you know, what the kind of harm people can do by not trusting science or not trusting you and, and everything that goes with that. My question is, is it somehow easier to deal with that now because you've seen it? Because the expectation has been lowered. I mean, this is a hard question because it's like, because you've given up on humanity. And I don't mean that. 
<laughs> but I do mean there's a sense of like, you've seen it now. And so maybe you're not as vulnerable to it as you would have been in April or May of 2020, or is that not the right way to think about this? No, I definitely parts of my heart have become very hard. <clears throat> they have just had to be to survive. Like full disclosure, when my mom told me on the phone that they weren't getting boosted, this was like this past winter, you know, when Omicron was still hitting. And I just was just like, and my mother, who is a person who I do love, but we have had contentious relationship and I, I curse a lot. Anyways, I was just like, why are you telling me this? Fuck you. And I hung up on her. I was so mad. I just couldn't even handle it. Um, so clearly I don't have fantastic coping mechanisms all the time. Um, I called her back and then we talked about it and she gave me her reasons, but, um, yeah, you just learn not to care as much. Like I, I, I feel like such a liar sometimes, you know, at the end of the year of the nurse, I made such a big point of saying you shouldn't break your healthcare workers. You want us to care whether you live or die. <clears throat> and these things are true, but right now we just are broken. And, and I feel bad, but a lot of us we just don't care. Like we used to, we just, can't we don't have we don't have the bandwidth and to some degree we can't be bothered it's just we've already given so much that there's just nothing left and um now that we're kind of moving away from covid care it's going to take a while for those that well to be refilled if ever you know because a lot of times once you develop coping mechanisms they're not anything that you, you don't let go of them right you just keep on keeping on because it's safer that way um I had an incident at work though recently, which kind of made me cry and, and it wasn't COVID related, but it was because I was put in a helpless situation again though. And I was so frustrated and that was just, I I kind of had like a nice window after that poor lady had died. There was no moral distress there for a while. And then I was recently in this situation where I was just between a rock and a hard place for, um, a person's outcome versus what we were able to do for them versus what administration was able to do for us in regarding to end of life visitation. And, and I just, just like, Oh, this is what this feels like again, to know that you're not going to win. You're going to be a disappointment to everybody involved. And this time they're here to tell it to your face. And, um, that was, that was miserable. I just came out of that room thinking, Oh, this is awful. Um, I wish I had another job. So we'll see how that goes in the future. It's, I think people don't realize um, what a linchpin it, that nursing is for all the rest of the care that you receive because, you know, we're the person talking to the nutritionist when you're hungry. We're talking to the doctor about your care as it happens. We're talking to physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy. We're like your secretary. We're coordinating all of these people around you in a tornado of activity to make sure that you have all the things happen to you that are going to make you better. <clears throat> and, um, but it's exhausting, right? Because sometimes what one, what one group wants is opposed to what another group wants. And you kind of have to field that back and forth. It's like, it's all, you're almost always trapped in this mommy and daddy are fighting situation at work where you're right. trying to make the best of a difficult situation because, you know, a patient wants something or the patient's family wants something. These things are 
irreconcilable, uh, you know, because of their, their health status. And sometimes it's something as small as like a patient just like yelling at you because they can't have gravy because they're diabetic and it's not allowed. And you're just like, I'm trying to save your life. Can you just <laughs> not eat the gravy? And then, then right. other times it sits on a much bigger scale where you're, you're explaining to somebody how come, you know, monoclonal antibodies aren't appropriate for their person's care. Right. Um, but you're always disappointing somebody and it's hard to have a job where disappointing people is a part of your job description, you know? So. Well, I just want to remind folks who've been listening to COVID calls and um, this has been one of the restoring memory episodes of COVID calls. And I was so happy to have a chance to talk to Cassie Alexander again, who I always get about 10 hours of education and ideas for every hour that we spend together and we're going to leave it there for now. I mean, even that last part you were talking about that, that it doesn't matter if you're treating patients and it's a, it's a tough situation. It's going to bring back COVID for you. And that's trauma. I mean, that's PTSD, I guess, or some variant of that. And, and we're, since we're still in the middle of this thing, we don't know how long, how long that's, that's going to last. Thank you for just describing that in such a comprehensible way to a person who's never taken care of anybody other than using a thermometer and over the, over the counter medicine. <laughs> Real um, fast, Scott, before you let yeah. me go too, just, I have to make a prediction for the future. If we hit another wave, the wheels are going to fall off. Like I, America is not ready it's, for it. It's coming. Yeah. It was almost this past winter. So many healthcare systems were so close to <clears throat> breaking down. Like even my own hospital, which has X amount of beds, had one third more patients in it than we had beds. Like they were doubling up beds on floors that in rooms, single rooms that were never meant to be doubled. So if we have another wave of BA.2 comes through and is wild or some other variant comes up, like we're just not, the, the healthcare system isn't going to be able to withstand that again. Just as an FYI. <laughs> Well, I predict if you can make time to do it, that we'll get a chance to talk in the next couple of months about where where we are with that. But um, thanks for being part of this this special group of episodes, and um, thanks for always just being so honest about what you're going through. I appreciate it, Cassie. Yeah, thanks, Scott. This is always pretty fun. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls. And in fact, in just five minutes, you can catch another COVID Calls episode. I'll be talking to Greg Gonzalez, welcoming him back to COVID Calls. So please do tune in for that.